The following is a conversation between Brett Hagler, co-founder and CEO of New Story, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. An estimated 3 billion people will be living without access to adequate shelter by 2050, a 200% increase over the next three decades. Unless we look to address this problem differently, there is no way that we will be able to address it successfully. And an organization that is doing exactly that is New Story. And it's a pleasure to have with us their co-founder and CEO, Brett Hagler. Welcome to the Business of Giving, Brett. Thanks, Denver. Great to be here. Give us some of the history and mission of New Story, an organization that you co-founded back in 2014. Our mission is to pioneer solutions to end global homelessness. And how we began um, was after a trip that I took to Haiti um, a couple years after the 2010 earthquake. I went down there without a passion for shelter or even really for the social impact work that we were doing. I had a for-profit startup at the time and we were giving back a little bit of money that we were making. And I went down and just experienced families living without licensed basic human needs, safety and shelter. They were just living in, in tents with seemingly no solution. And so that was how I found out about the problem that we're now very passionate about trying to solve. That was part one. And then part two was I was young, I was 24. So I didn't really think about starting my own organization. I tried to find other organizations that I could get really excited about and I could champion, mainly trying to find orgs that were just approaching things differently, being a little more forward thinking, a little more modern. And what I kept seeing was just a, a very traditional approach, seemingly people doing the same thing, how they've always done it for the last few decades. And that kind of sparked the idea of what it would look like to create a kind of a brand new organization from scratch. And we could just ideally be founded on different, more modern operating principles. And that's how it started. Now, I touched a little bit on this in the opening, but share with us some more about the dimensions of this problem, this worldwide homelessness problem. Where is it most acute? And why is it expected to increase so dramatically between now and 2050? You'll see a lot of different experts give exact numbers, but what I've been saying is it's just for people listening, it's roughly a billion people that don't have safe shelter. And that's a really big number to wrap your head around. And it can be quite paralyzing sometimes, but that's kind of where it is today. And it's expected to increase. And I think there's going to be a lot of issues with it increasing. One, Prices continue to go up, and if the poor's income is not going up with that, then you have an issue there. There's going to be climate change issues that are going to happen. Obviously, population growth is going to occur, and it's just difficult to build low-cost homes for billions of people that are not middle class and that consider themselves in poverty. Mm -hmm. And so it's a massive problem, and not only is it a big problem, it's, I would argue, probably one of the most expensive problems in the world <laughs> yeah. um, because other interventions are much lower cost which obviously makes a lot of sense for people to kind of put their money there because it is very effective. But housing, unfortunately, is not a cheap intervention. Yeah. Um, if you think about anybody's expenses, my expenses, your expenses, most likely at the top or close to the top is going to be whether you bought a house with cash, you have a mortgage, or you have a rent, it's the majority of what you have to spend. So it's just an expensive basic need. But it is what we've learned over and over again. Like if you don't have safety and shelter, you're pretty much just locked into trying to survive. When you can get those two needs covered, then you're unlocked to actualize more of your potential. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're seeing that right now with this pandemic, with rents and mortgages and all those things, what a central issue that has become. So instead of approaching this challenge in the same way that this challenge has always been approached, you have come up with a revolutionary new idea to address it. Share with us that idea. Yeah, so this, I mean, it's just kind of um, our first act into different innovations to try to lower the home cost. But we've teamed up with our partner, Icon. They're a technology startup out of Austin, Texas. And the dream was, could we lower the cost, increase speed, and do those two things without decreasing quality for the homes that our families live in? And just for context, the families that we work with, they are in extreme poverty. The homes that we build and partner with them on are about anywhere between like 500 to 650 square feet. So mm-hmm. story built to last, but pretty simple homes. And so we're like, okay, how can we lower the cost and do it faster and have better quality? And 3D printing houses came across our radar as something very futuristic, but is, is, was in the early days of concept and development. And we just thought, wow, we have like the best use case for this because we have small, simple, single story homes that is mostly built of cement or or kind of block housing. And so let's try this. And we had to develop a machine with our partner icon from scratch. It was the prototype. There had never been a home 3D printed in America before. And we were able to do that to prove it. And then from there, that was the first step, which was a big milestone because it actually was permitted which is a big deal. It wasn't just like a laboratory thing. It was an actual permitted house in the U.S., the first of its kind. And then the next step after that was the harder step, which was now we've proven a little prototype, which, yes, is exciting. But now we have to make a new machine that we could drive down to Mexico or El Salvador, take it off of the 18-wheeler, and in the middle of nowhere without reliable electricity and the conditions that we work in, in the 3D print houses there. And... That was just an order of magnitude more challenging. The seismic zone, weather, all of that stuff. And we fortunately were able to do that. And in December of 2019, we began creating the world's first 3D printed community in Mexico. Got off to a great start. Apple TV actually did a documentary on it. It's live now on Apple TV under their home series. And then we obviously had to pause more recently because of the virus. But mm-hmm. that's what happened. And, you know, pretty the- exciting. The thinking of it was we could try to get out in front and take a risk, but create something that has potential to be a breakthrough in how we do shelter, prove it, which is what we're doing right now. And then the bigger idea after that is not to keep it for news story, but to really democratize it and and enable other organizations and governments to use it. And that's how you get a true scale in our opinion. Let me take a step back for a moment, because I think everyone has heard of 3D printing, but might not fully understand how it works. Explain it to us. Sure. So how I explain it to my mom is that it's a gantry machine and it has a nozzle. And then coming out of the nozzle is a proprietary cement mix. And the consistency almost looks like soft serve ice cream that comes out of it. Mm -hmm. And then what's coming out of it is you're layering the interior and exterior walls of the house. So you start at the very bottom with one layer and it essentially prints the CAD file that you have. And so you do one layer, which is about an inch and a half thick. And then it goes around there's another layer all the way to the top. So it layers, it layers the whole house to the top. Mm -hmm. Brad, how long does it take to build a house? 
Well, it's getting much faster. And so the last two homes we did, it was very encouraging. I can't give the exact numbers, but it was about two days for one house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How sturdy are they? You said they're in areas where there's earthquakes and there's... Yeah, they're designed, they're designed to be seismic, strong enough for seismic zones. The homes that we did in the beginning are actually over-engineered, I would say, and we chose to do that on purpose just for safety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is, these are literally the first families that are ever going to live, that are living in 3D printed houses. And so we decided to over-index on safety. And that meant engineering a stronger foundation for seismic zones and having different reinforcements just because people have not lived in 3D print houses before. So we wanted to make them as safe as possible. Yeah, cool. What is it going to cost a family to live here or at least what percentage of their income are you shooting for? So part of their income is kind of usual how we people would try to project in the U.S., give or take around 30% Mm -hmm. um, is, Mm -hmm. is ideal. Tell us a little bit about Icon. I know they've created this machine that you were talking about. I think it's called the Vulcan 2. It must yeah. have been fun trying to get this into places like Mexico and El Salvador. I don't even know how you cross the borders. We actually had a problem crossing the border in Mexico. We thought it was going to take about a week. and ended up taking almost three months. The machine was literally held at the border in customs for three months. And so that puts a change in your quarterly plans when that happens. So Icon's amazing. We met them in the very early days when they were just forming their company. And uh, we teamed up with them to a new story. did the R&D funding for the first prototype machine, which is the Vulcan 1. Mm-hmm. And, and they did an excellent job signing it, proving it. And then the Vulcan 2 is the next version of the machine that we partnered with them on. And so... Icon, obviously, New Story is a huge partner of theirs, and they've now developed other partnerships, mainly in the U.S., with other companies. Yeah. And another key partner of yours in this community you're building in Mexico is your nonprofit partner. Who are they and what are they doing? So huge, very important piece of our model is finding expert local organizations that have been doing this work, that have government relationships, that can really be kind of the, the hands and feet and doing that all with excellence and with integrity. And so the group we work with, they're called Echele Tukasa, mm-hmm. and they've done an extraordinary job of, of building thousands of homes in Mexico um, the last two decades. And so they help us source land, source families, government relationships. They have the local building teams to engineer the foundations, to put on the doors, the roofs, all of that stuff is all done with local labor through Echele. Brad, share with us the process of coming up with such a crazy idea in the first place. Mm-hmm. deciding not to abandon it, and then persisting until it became a reality. Things like this just don't happen every day. Yes. You kind of reverse engineer it. It was definitely risky, but we didn't bet the company on it. We didn't do anything, I would say. That was stupid. We started small. And so there's a phrase that business author Jim Collins uses, fire bullets before your cannonballs. And yep. that essentially is that if you're trying to sink a ship, right, or hit your target or your goal, don't load up all your ammo at once and fire one large cannonball because there's a good chance you're not going to hit the ship and you're out of ammo. But fire some bullets that are cheaper. You get to iterate, you get to learn. And then when you're ready, then you can load up and put more resources into a larger cannonball. And that's really what we did. And so the first version definitely was expensive, but again, it wasn't irresponsible on our behalf. It was something that I was okay with if it totally failed. Because I think you need to bake that into budget as a some kind of innovation budget or line item that, that you know is not guaranteed to work. Yep. And so we started there and then fortunately it did work and then kind of just took the, the next steps. And so even though it, it, it is an audacious initiative, I think you can still be smart about it and set 
certain milestones that basically unlocks you the license to invest more into it. Mm -hmm. And these audacious ideas, at least a new story, start with something called moonshots? Yes. Yeah, that's right. So in our organization's DNA is we're just trying to instill bigger thinking with our team. And so we have sessions about every quarter where we just kind of get all together and we have to come up with like big moonshot ideas that elsewise we wouldn't really be thinking about or discussing. And this was one of those ideas. So we keep a long, long running list of other ones. And it's, I think you have to bake that into your organization, that kind of thinking. And obviously it can't be like every, every week, or I'd say probably even every month, but a quarter, like two times a year to really zoom out and have serious sessions about what could we dream up? I think it's just so important for, for trying to create the future. Yeah, that's, that's a, absolutely great. What we can do and what we do a lot is if we come across something that we like, I love doing this is all kind of like floated around to other people. And so and I say this all the time that bold ideas attract bold people, yeah. right? So for example, if I'm asking somebody that has means to catalyze the funding of 3D printing homes for the world's poor. That's going to get their attention more than, hey, can you help fund 10 houses how they've always been built? And so you can, if you have a bold idea, the best thing you can do is float it around to other bold people because they're going to latch on to that because it's unique and a lot of people are not coming to them with that. Yeah. I think the line that people sometimes abuse, maybe you've heard, is that if you're having trouble rolling a rock up a hill, the best yeah. thing to do is find a bigger rock. Because that will excite a whole new cadre of people who will look at that rock and will bring new tools to it and new energy to it. And that is what like you that. did. Yeah. Like you know, you, it's good. <laughs> you know, you said at the very outset that you intend to share this idea, something we don't always see in the nonprofit sector, although we should. So talk a little bit about that, that once you design these solutions, other nonprofits, other governments, you want to solve this problem. Speak about that and something about the ethos of the organization that compels you to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we're necessarily that more, I don't know, like willing to share or be nicer than other organizations. We just really think of it from a strategy standpoint that if you really do want to accomplish big things and some organizations, that's not the case and that's okay. Like not everybody has to try to impact tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. It's totally what you want to do. But for us, we do have an ambition to impact millions of people. And so we think the only way we can really do that is we have to go outside of ourselves and we have to just have our theory of change be way different than just a function of how much money we have to raise to build X number of homes or X number of communities. Mm -hmm. That's just, there's no leverage in that. It just takes so long and there's no leverage as opposed to what if we can create solutions that solve problems that the rest of the sector has and then they can adopt those solutions, then those numbers start getting truly exponential because it's outside of your organization. And we just think that if you have an audacious idea, there's no way you can do it yourself. If you're trying to do it yourself, the idea is, is either small or it's okay if, if that's how you want to do it that way. But that's really how we think about it. There's no other way in our mind to have up such a broad impact unless we're working with and helping other organizations and governments. Mm -hmm. You are exceptionally intentional and proud of your workplace culture. What are the main pillars of it? And has it changed in any fashion since this lockdown and the way you go about doing your work? 
The first thing that comes to mind is less how has it changed. And there's been definitely some subtle changes, but I think it's more of in the good times, which was really the whole time we've been building New Story, everything, the market, all the stuff has been arguably some of the best time of the decade. And so when you're investing in culture and really caring about people and building resilience and owner's mentality and all of these things, it's definitely important. But what I'm seeing more than ever as a leader is now the ROI and the hard times. We already have the culture. The last thing that what I worry about is, is somebody giving their full effort with excellence at home when nobody's watching. It's just a given. Or how are people going to think about us adapting and trying something new and it totally messed up what they thought their plans were going to be. We have a value that's called team of founder. That's been instilled in us from the beginning, everybody that comes to the team. And so now at a time of such ambiguity and uncertainty, I'm seeing an ROI on what we invest in into the culture more than ever. Yeah. And so for those listening, obviously, hopefully not another global pandemic, but other things are going to happen over the next decade. And I think you get the most out of your culture during times that are kind of down times. Yeah. And we're seeing that now. And I think ultimately, man, it's just like, yes, there are definitely obviously certain standards and ways of working that we have in our values that I would say are pretty high. But what I think is most important is the team knowing that you care more about them personally than about them professionally. And when they truly feel that, they're just so bought in. Like, how could you not be? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's irresistible. And I think our team knows that it's kind of this dichotomy of they know there's a high standard. They know they're held to a certain standard and they know that we genuinely love and care for them. I say the words love and care probably more than anything to our team. Mm -hmm. It's not some pie in the sky, like Mr. Nice Guy talk. I believe it's just the truth. If you can build a culture around that, then you're kind of unstoppable Mm -hmm. from a team standpoint. You mentioned a second ago, team of founders. Share with us the idea behind team of founders. So it's one of our main values. And it's essentially just taking an ownership mentality that you're part of such a bigger story here. You're not just clocking in regular hours here for however long. New story is still somewhat in the early days. We're entering our sixth year. And you're really helping build what we believe is a pretty ambitious long-term vision. And you are the one that is contributing and building and shaping and creating that. And that's everything from not just your role, but if you're seeing me give a a presentation or a keynote and you could see how something could be way different or better, or the copy should be different in the slides, you're going to think outside of your role and you're going to go and try to bring it up or like work on it because you're kind of zooming out and looking at the whole organization as opposed to only being siloed in your own role. And I think having that mentality, people obviously love it. And I just think it brings so much value to the organization. Yeah, I agree. It's wonderful when people show up for work every day and think about what they would do if they were the CEO. It just changes what their possibilities are. Let me move on to another issue because with so many college students having had their jobs, their internships, their travel plans disrupted because of COVID-19, you've been kicking around an idea that might be of interest to some of them. What is that idea? Yeah, actually, right before we recorded this, I just had a long session with our chief growth officer about how we're going to launch it. So we're building the whole curriculum and the website and the name and all that stuff right now. So I won't share it all because some of it may be changed. But essentially what we're putting together is a one-month course, mainly for college students and grad students that have had their plans disrupted this summer. 
but they don't want to waste the summer. They still want to learn, grow, and connect with other like-minded people like them and other mentors. And they want to advance their aspirations and their aspirations for their career, for their dream. And so what we're going to put together is something that we think that we have earned some credibility to speak on. And it's essentially, how do you go about creating a next generation social impact organization that is built on very similar ideas and principles that New Story is, which does evolve around a lot more innovation, a lot more creativity. How do you usher in more software? And how do you think about designing your idea for open sourcing and all that stuff? And we think that that being taught by founders and executives on our team, and then we're going to have some of our advisors be guest teachers. We think it's just very practical because we literally just did it. We went from, I was 24. I had no experience in this. Mm -hmm. I pretty much had no money. I didn't have a great network. It was a decent network. And we started the organization with like $2,000. Yeah. (laughs) Five years later, we've now over $50 million has come through our bank account and revenue. I'm going to list off some of the other things that I'm proud of our team, but it's like, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things that we're going to teach, I do think other people can replicate. And I don't think you have to have all of these crazy pre-existing resume qualifications and all of that, because I sure didn't. And a lot of our team members didn't. And so I think it's more of a mindset. And I think it's more of- What know, is that mindset? Tell us about that mindset. I think at the heart of it, it is respectfully going against the traditional way of doing things with enough thoughtfulness that of course there are things that you should learn from and you should respect from the more traditional models. Undoubtedly, we learned so much from it, but our default is really to challenge the status quo. Mm -hmm. We're building a new future. We have a whole new decades coming up and we want to try to start solving problems in different ways. And that's a mentality that I think a lot of people can adopt. That's not rocket science. It's a different way of thinking. It doesn't have to be crazy, exciting, sexy innovations like 3D printing houses. That's an example, but you can apply that to your donor's experience. You can apply that to who are you hiring and why? What's, how are you using software? There's so many different ways you can apply the mindset. And so we just want to teach that and we want to have students learn. Obviously not all of them are going to start something now, but I think that a mindset is really important. And I think some of them probably will begin on their ideas in college, but even if they want to start something five, six years, learning now, and then being able to take that skill set and that mindset into another organization after college, we think is going to be beneficial there. Maybe not to the extreme that you're talking about, but do you think the mindset's going to change a little bit after this, with this pandemic, the, the way philanthropists go about giving their money and the way nonprofits think about how they go about their business? I think in the short term, we're already seeing it. Philanthropy, I think, is definitely going to change. Probably a little bit more so of where people are allocating their money. It's still early and a lot of this is to be determined, but I do think what we work on and who we get our money from, which is mostly U.S. donors, Mm -hmm. I think we do have kind of the hardest pitch now, which is we still want you to care about a homeless family in Mexico. It's just... Harder pitch. They're looking out their window right now and they see all the unmet need there. It's hard to have them look that far away. You have to have empathy with that and you have to adjust and you have to figure things out. So I think there's going to be a huge focus on relieving COVID efforts all around the world over the next two years. I think it'll start locally. And then I think, unfortunately, we are going to see some issues, some pretty probably serious issues in the developing world. And I think a lot of the philanthropy is going to go to solving those urgent issues. Yeah, yeah on food, some other things, some medical stuff. 
And I think that's where the majority of the money's going to go. But it's not to say some can't go elsewhere. And as far as nonprofits, I'm a little biased, but I do think that news stories, mentality, and how we think about challenging the status quo and refreshing the traditional model and all of that is more important than ever. Being able to adapt, being able to change, having a team that has a team of founders mentality that has range and can do things differently. It's a cliche at this point, but it's just accelerating what was already about to happen. Yeah. And I guess what you're saying is that despite the challenges, that is your competitive advantage going forward. Yeah, I do think so. And you're going to see it. We're two months in and we've already launched two new programs for startups. One was a U.S. effort to focus on rent relief here. That's done incredibly well. This next one is this course that we're creating. I don't think those are going to be the only two that we do. I just wrote a blog about this coming out. Everybody during the season obviously has to be very resilient. That's a no-brainer. If you're not resilient, you're obviously going to go out of business. You have to be tenacious. You have to be resilient. But that's not the only thing. You also have to be relevant. And so we've been saying resilient and relevant. Because if you have dogged determination and you're crazy resilient, fall seven times, stand up eight, but you're not going in the right direction and you're not relevant, that doesn't matter. It's a dead end. So you have to figure out how do you make a pivot to be relevant right now? And you have to ideally still align that with your mission and try to be creative and figuring out how you can align it to your mission. Is it maybe going to stretch your mission a little bit? Probably, but like mm-hmm. a once in a lifetime thing. I'm somebody that loves focus, that hate mission drift, all of that stuff. But I do think that desperate times call for you to just be real about it and think, yeah, does our mission expand a little bit? That's what you have to think about. Yeah, exactly right. Well, things are not going to be the same before this than after. So why should we try to remain the same? It doesn't make any sense. For listeners who want to learn more about 3D printing, the houses you're building, all the other things you talked about, or if they want to make a financial contribution to help support this work, tell us about your website. You just go to newstorycharity.org. Right now we're running a campaign that is focused in the U.S., essentially trying to help the most at-risk families with kids that are low-income families that have lost their job because of the virus. And we want to make sure they don't lose their homes too. So we're essentially helping them with rent. And you can rent. And 100% of your donations will go towards helping vulnerable families in the U.S. Well, I want to thank you, Brett, for taking the time to share these insights with us. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. All right, my friend. Thanks, Denver.